Good morning and welcome to this episode of the Bretton Goods podcast. I'm speaking to Michael Fritzel, who runs the very popular in, uh, investing newsletter, Asian Century Stocks. Michael has worked in buy-side equity research since 2010, and now his newsletter talks about uh, talks about stocks you should buy in, in, in Asia. Uh, hi, Michael. Nice to ha- have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, my first question for you is, where do you come from and why did you decide to go into equity research? Well, you know, I, I have a pretty complex background. I've, I've lived in many different countries uh, and I consider myself Swedish because my parents are Swedish. But I was, I was, uh, I was born in Switzerland, outside of Geneva, uh, to Swedish parents. I moved to Sweden when I was six years old and I studied there, you know, for most of my education. Uh, but since then, I, I worked in the UK in investment banking, and then I, for some reason, I ended up in Asia, 2009. And, and since then, I've been working mostly uh, in equity research for different buy-side firms, uh, family office, hedge fund, mutual fund. Uh, so that's you know that's like a very short summary. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, in many, many different countries, it's hard to say exactly. You know, it's hard to pinpoint me. Sometimes when people hear my accent, they think I'm German, but you know, I'm not. I uh, have a more complex background than that. I can also mention I, I lived in in India for for uh, half a year, 2006, as part of my studies, uh, and and that was the first time you know coming to Asia, and and I guess uh, you know it sparked sparked curios- curiosity in a way, uh, and and after that, 2009 to 2013, I lived in China. Um, picked up the language, and I was working for you know a, a fund based out of Shanghai. So and, and yeah. since, since then I've been in, in Singapore, of course. Okay. Since China, uh, you worked in China at the time, and China and Chinese financial markets were much less developed than they are now, as they were then. What did that experience teach you about in, about investing in developing countries largely? Um. There's just not that much information. I mean, the information that you have as an American investor, uh, for example, or you're, or a British investor, you're spoiled. There's a, there's a wealth of information, and sometimes people don't even use it. They don't realize how good they have it. Uh, back then, you know, I I was we were starting an A share fund in 2012 13, and I can tell you there was like if you if you met these companies, Asian companies. First of all, I was probably the first person they met who, who was not, you know, Chinese, mainland Chinese. Uh, or, and they didn't have any presentations. Often you met the general, general secretary, of the board, and they just spoke, you know, randomly. <laughs> you know, it was, it, it was a, a wild experience. And um, uh, so you know, lack of information is, is one thing. And um, you quickly realize that there's always more to the story of every story of uh, if you visit the company that your first impression is is not what you end up with you know after after a longer relationship you pick up more stuff you know the next time you go there and and so on uh, so it's just a very information scarce environment and there's since there's no real rule of law if you are exposed to a fraud <clears throat> Um, there's not really not much you can do about it. You can't go to court 
uh, and win against some 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 local businessman, uh, or you, know, you don't really have recourse to to the assets, especially if you're investing in a VIE structure. <clears throat> but but you know, as a, as a general rule, these emerging markets they don't have a very robust rule of law, uh, and that makes it more about the character of the people involved. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I spent a lot of time researching the individuals involved uh, in, in particular companies, the founders especially, and see what they've done in the past, all the transactions that each company has done. Uh, and, and you don't have to be as worried, perhaps, if you invest in Starbucks or Disney. Um, so emerging markets, the, pri- the primary issue is corporate governance uh, or, or the risk of accounting misrepresentation or fraud. Uh, so that was, has been a major concern and, and focus of mine. Um, are there a, any common characteristics among the uh, among among the executives or the founders whose company stocks lead to um, high returns? Do you see a pattern in yeah. in those CEOs? Yes, absolutely. I think um, you know I haven't done any let's say back tests or or I cannot prove it quantitatively. But I'm sure that if, <clears throat> sorry, I, I'm sure that if, if a company is overly promotional, uh, then it, that it, that's a clear warning sign. Uh, I'm thinking right now, when we asked, we asked the question, I, I thought about uh, Ma Tong, like, uh, or Ma Huatong, uh, of Tencent. He's a, a very low-key person. Uh, he doesn't seek media attention at all. And... Um, they, they, they've you know, consistently been non-promotional. If anything, they've been actually trying to get expectations down on their stock. And it's very clear that when a company does the opposite, you know, being very promotional, that's a, that's a clear warning sign. If, the, if they're seeking you out, especially if they travel to these smaller places, like if they travel to, uh, you know, even, even Frankfurt, if they travel to Vienna to visit investors, that's it, you know, that's a clear warning sign. That means they ran out of, of victims in, in New York and Singapore. So um, you don't want to uh, invest in promotional management teams. I think that's number one. Um, but otherwise, like related portal transactions or a corporate structure, which is not clean, when you have a parent company which is involved in operational activities, especially if it's private, uh, that leads to you know huge risks, like uh, some companies like um, well I won't mention them by name but uh, they they will have sister companies and tons of transactions between them, you know from that perspective, companies promotional they're raising capital and then they have tr- transactions with the related parties, mm-hmm. of course of course they're gonna have these transactions at non-market terms, <laughs> so you know in these situations you're very very vulnerable. Uh, uh, if and especially okay, if we talk about China in particular, but that could be the case in other countries as well. Maybe Indonesia. Uh, if if the repercussions for fraud are so low that uh, it, it almost doesn't matter, then of course you know people will, will take a shot. You know, secure the financial freedom for the for the whole family for generations. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's not. It's not so so surprising that uh, fraud exists, that you know that it takes place when there are basically no repercussions. Um, 
what made you take the plunge from be from working in a structured job in a more traditional equity research role into running your into the uh, running your own research firm because doesn't that in uh, involve some amount of career risk it's it's an it's an absolute career risk you know and I, i'm still not sure whether it'll work out uh frankly you know, i can be honest i started this in in uh, april asian century stocks and now i have 125 uh subscribers and um getting closer to to break even and and i'm i'm quite sure i'll get there um but f- for me I, i'm i'm attracted to um to having kind of autonomy i can focus on what i think makes sense and i've given myself the mandate to find uh good ideas you know like ideas with good upside and to me that's that's what i want to focus on i found when i work for others um be it in a in a contract research role or if i work for uh, as an analyst uh they would typically ask me to 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 um to look for stocks that i really don't have much interest in uh for example these you know chinese tech stocks and so on uh i consider them to be very difficult to understand and um this autonomy has given me uh you know it's, it's for me it's it's more satisfying to to research stocks that i truly believe in uh so that was the primary reason and it this could become profitable over time so continue for 3 4 5 years i think the um, the number of subscribers could make this you know very worthwhile eventually uh we'll see though i mean it's a, it's a big risk um how do you decide what's free and what's paywalled on your newsletter um so i'm i'm at the moment i'm kind of trying these things out i'm not sure what i should do what is uh, rational but um so far i've been trying to put posts that could become more viral i put them outside the mm-hmm. paywall and um stuff that takes a lot of um uh, that, that you can't get anywhere else i will also put behind the paywall uh to give an incentive to subscribe um frankly i suppose everything i write should be unique and and add value but but certainly uh there are certain types of posts which are more likely to become viral for example i wrote one post on nintendo it's it's kind of a popular stock for good reason and um th- that that spread quite a bit uh whereas for example if i write about you know british american tobacco malaysia i don't think anyone gives a shit to be honest <laughs> no because i i agree with you because on things i feel that have a lot more like there are a lot more detail when when i write my own newsletter and they don't go popular but i promise that that if i wrote uh 200 words on some america uh china relations topic that would fly all over there this is there's definitely a trade off there between delivering for you the the goal is to deliver research that makes money and there's a trade off there between that and uh research that goes viral so i so what do you think of the because we are in the end beholden to the algorithm overlords who decide how what percentage of the of the links show up on people's uh, feeds so how do you do you, do you have a specific strategy to to manage the placement of your newsletter on social media 
Um, it's tricky. I mean, it, it's it's very very tricky. I I can't say I have a you know I have a clear strategy. I'm I'm hoping that I write good enough research that people will pay pay attention to it. Um, how to beat the algo? You know, I think you just have to adapt. It's a competitive uh, arena. You know, you you're competing with others basically for attention. So you kind of have to continuously figure out new ideas and new hacks. For example, before there was this fleet functionality in, in Twitter, which put you at the top of the Twitter feed or, or, or the app. Mm. And that helped, you know, I, I said at the time, I think most people, they, they found my newsletter through the fleet and not my tweet. It didn't show up on their timeline. Uh, so things like that could help. Uh, of course, all the free posts I would also post on on Reddit and uh, LinkedIn and Facebook to the extent that I can. Uh, at the same time, you know, I'm busy. I don't want to spend too much time promoting. So I know that some people say that you should you should spend majority of your time promoting yourself, but I probably spend ten uh, percent or less than ten percent of the time promoting. But, but, you know, hopefully, I think this requires that people actually share my research. Mm. So maybe I should put people to share more. Um, uh, actually, Substack has been pretty good as well. They've been, um, they put me on on, um, on a promotional page, which I really appreciate. And uh, I got a few subscribers from that as well. Okay. And uh, I think I'm hopeful as well that soon Substack will launch, launch this app, Substack Reader app. Mm-hmm. And if they put this, this discovery tab on the Substack Reader app, and of course I'm 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 one of the top uh, finance uh, publications. If they um, if they do that, you know, inside the app and the app blows up, that could be uh, I could grow just from being on that list. Hopefully. Do you think more equity research will become unbundled in the future with more people, with, with some established uh, researchers, especially the, the the famous, the what you might call the all-star analysts saying that they'll quit their uh, firms and start substacks? Is this a viable path for most people? I don't think so, because, um, you know, for you to quit as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, you know, as, a, as an analyst, you're making millions. Mm. Probably, if, if you're a good analyst in a, in a in a hot sector, let's say, uh, I don't know, you know, is it millions? Yeah, probably. At least if you're a little bit senior, and and uh, for you to you know to do a substack and become really, you know, targeting the retail investor, that would that would take a lot. It takes a long time to build up that kind of user base to to make this all worthwhile. Some people succeeded. Like this, uh, you know, Bill Bishop. And, well, I won't mention names, perhaps. I mean, there are some that have succeeded very, you know, creating a huge newsletter, newsletter and be able to make a lot of money out of it. But it takes time, and I don't think that they will uh, be, you know, be be willing to to put in the hours and, and the time and the risk of of doing so. So I think sales research uh, will basically um, be, be be tough. It will be tough for the sales analysts. The, and the market will shrink on the margin. Uh, funds will, will still continue to use sell-side research because they need to get allocation in IPOs. They, they need someone to help them trade. Uh, you know, of course, there are alternatives, but they still rely on them for execution. And, uh, and also, conferences are popular. 
Um, now with MIFID, of course, you have to justify each uh, each of these expenses. So the, the pool will shrink and on the margin, perhaps some of that money will float to Substacks. Uh, but you know, the, the, the budgeting processes that I've been involved in, I don't see Substack being mentioned. It's, it's, it's almost like a separate, you know, in the, in the mental accounting, it's almost mm -hmm. like a separate category. So yeah. you use, you just, just use your credit card. You tell your analyst, oh yeah, subscribe to this. Mm -hmm. It's almost like, yeah, subscribe to Asia, uh, to, um, you know, AFR or, or FT or something. And, and then you add a few Substacks. Um, so that's the, I think that's the pricing that you need to be, um, you, you, you can't charge $5,000 for a Substack, I think. Yeah. It will have to be retail focused. And uh, some of us like yours, uh, you know, they have very high quality, um, but I still don't think you can charge yeah, I mean, kind of money, for money for that. Um, you thought about Asia's defense industry and you and you uh, went through all the different, um, all the different, the large companies. Now it's been a few months since you wrote, uh, since you wrote that, uh, five months. Uh, how has your view of that changed? Do you think some companies are better equipped than others? Uh, what's the future of that? To be honest, I, like one year ago, I knew almost nothing about the defense industry. Okay. Certainly not the Asian defense industry. So I am not an expert, you know, by any stretch of imagination. And I have started to dig into these, some of these companies. Uh, uh, the, the reason why I'm interested is, is, um, is, the, is the rhetoric coming from the People's Republic, to be honest. And um, that's been heating up. Of course, there are also counter uh, forces. They, are, they have been, uh, it's just, you know, things have been heating up. You've seen the comments by the Japanese defense minister and so on. Um, so that's the reason for, for looking into the sector. Uh, I was, when I started doing this, I was hoping to find a clear, you know, pure play uh, that, that, could be, um, that could be benefiting from, from hiring defense expenditures. Uh, the, the whole case here, by the way, is that the, U, the, the PLA spending, spending on the, on the PLA, but also other parts of the... Um, uh, let's say the forces that would be used in a in an invasion of, of Taiwan. I mean that spending is going up pretty rapidly. Let's say seven percent per year, and the rest of Asia has to match that spending increase to uh, secure their safety. Uh, maybe they maybe it's only maybe it's all about Taiwan. Maybe once they become unified, as as the communists will say. Um, Maybe then they will uh, they will stop their aggression. Mm. Who knows? But uh, either way, defense spending has to go increase, and that's across the region. Uh, I, I believe that India's you know, defense spending is already quite high, but Japan's is far too low. And um, uh, you know it, I mean, it, that is that is mostly yeah. because Japan is limited constitutionally, right, from spending more than that's some true. percent of GDP. Mm -hmm. One percent is is what they're spending right now, and that, that probably has to double. And right. in, in Japan, in in Japan, sorry, I actually forgot your question. You, you were asking which defense companies. Yeah, which I, defense stocks? We, I mean, how has your view changed uh, since March? 
it hasn't really changed all that much. I mean, it's all about the timing. Uh, you know, some people speak about an attack will happen in, within seven years. Um, others think it could be happen a lot faster in terms of the uh, the, um, the 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 forces that they have at hand, both uh, within the PLA, but also you know the maritime militia. It's already large enough to undertake an invasion, you know, which sounds crazy. I mean, we're talking about war here, uh, but it doesn't have to be necessarily that uh, dramatic. When when Russia took over Crimea, or I don't know how to pronounce that in English, it it, it wasn't an all-out war. It happened in almost in stealth, and uh, we could see something similar in Taiwan, some kind of blockade, uh, communication infrastructure being cut off, and so on. And, and basically a huge pressure on the government to accede to certain demands. Uh, so uh, exactly how they would play out, I'm not sure, but I'm, I am absolutely sure that something will happen. You know, Xi Jinping has staked his entire uh, le legitimacy on uh, communist takeover of, of Taiwan. So it's, it's gonna happen for sure. It's just a matter of when. We didn't, and, don't know when. Don't know when. Uh, five five months ago, I thought you know maybe uh, the uh, the April May um, time period is 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 high risk than other times of the year, and perhaps that's also true for September. But uh, uh, you know exactly when I'm not sure. There was uh, some other experts talk about after the Olympics being you know. It's being a real risk. I'm not sure, uh, but either way, I don't think you necessarily have to bet on a war or something mm -hmm. like that. You just have to bet on uh, continued spending on on uh, on the on the military, mm -hmm. uh, frankly, across the region. And so, not much has changed. It's just a matter of of um, of timing. And in in the universe. There are stocks listed in in Korea, in Japan, in uh, in Taiwan, Singapore, and, and India. Uh, and I would say the 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 real upside is is in the Jap Japanese defense companies. Uh, there aren't many pure plays, unfortunately. The bigger companies would be Mitsubishi Heavy and Kawasaki Heavy, but. Um, they're not pure, pure place, as I said. Perhaps there might be some upside uh, for both of them, uh, and it might warrant a, a you know a closer look. Um, but you know, you also get into politics and and what is the likelihood that you will see the necessary political changes that will allow for a higher spending, as percentage of GDP. Uh, um, I'm not sure. We okay, so. We're entering a period of geopolitical uncertainty everywhere, not just Asia or anything. Um, are you are you somebody who who wants to who who would uh, approach their research by by saying let's look at the macro first or the micro first? Uh, would you? I mean, do you look at themes and say I'm going to invest in this team, or do you look company by company and find uh, something that's a that's high quality and at a reasonable price? I think it all depends on the company. So, you know, for each company, there are a few factors that really matter. Uh, maybe you can name them, you know, you can say two or three factors that you should, should really focus on and dig deeper into. 
And it all really depends on each company. So certain companies, especially these commodity companies that have commodity products, uh, undifferentiated products, those tend to be more uh, impacted by industry factors like supply and demand or regulation uh, or, you know, which could include interest rates. So it all really depends. So if you talk about, for example, tobacco stocks, what really matters there is taxes. That's one factor. The, another factor is, is, is volumes. And then the third factor would probably be pricing. What the upside is in terms of pricing uh, and, and volumes. I mean, there are, certain, there are a few of these factors. But then if you talk about a bank, then the factors would be the net interest margin to the provisioning of credit losses. Um, and, and, and then perhaps growth in terms of deposits, uh, especially demand deposits. So in those instances, those you can call macro factors. Uh, so I, I think it really depends. I mean, the, to me, that's a bottom-up approach and that's what you should focus on. Uh, but then again, the, the factors, you know, some people can see them as macro factors, even though, um, yeah, some people can see them as macro factors, even though I, I, I would personally not uh, call them that. Um, so yeah, that's that's a that's a short answer. It all depends. I don't mind buying, um, you know, uh, let's say stocks in industries where people typically don't see them as having franchise values. Okay. Um, you you could well have a bank that's really uh, that have has something unique. Okay. That has a unique value proposition, a niche, and that's okay. good enough for me. You know. Uh, yeah. Um, you wrote about uh, China's housing market this year, and you talked about how it's it's unbalanced, and you know it 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 has the possibility for regulation or, or at least a fall in prices with a without uh, a, a regulation. What are your um? Could you explain that thesis to our listeners and what happens in the future after that? Well, um, so a key point here is uh, the majority of loans in the Chinese banking systems are backed by uh, collateral in terms of uh, being property. So falling property prices would not be good for the banking system. It would lead to non-performing loans. And that's uh, the, the, the government doesn't want to see property prices to fall. At the same time, uh, GDP matters at least it has mattered in the past. And they, they don't want an implosion in construction activity. Now, if you look at the number of apartments being built, they're somewhere between 20 and 25 million per year. But the actual number of completions is only about 11 or 12 million. So only half of new construction activity is being completed. And to me, this suggests that you have an, you know, a well, a huge number of apartments which are not being completed. Perhaps people are they're just staying on, on somebody's balance sheets. Exactly whose balance sheet, I'm not sure. Uh, perhaps partly property developers. Uh, we've seen in some cases, especially in, in lower tier markets, uh, thinking of Evergrande and Sunak, they, um, they, um, they build property and they only sell a part of it. And the rest is being booked at cost, remaining on the balance sheet. Uh, 
and that leads to you know they, they refuse to discount basically and then you get a build up in inventory at least that's what it looks like on the macro level and in this build up of inventory uh reached a kind of a crescendo in 2015 the government stepped in in this so-called supply side reform and uh, the, at that time inventories uh, overall fell for for a few years uh, thanks to huge budget deficits financed through these uh, development banks uh, but then since 2017 onwards inventories have started rising again and i think that's because there's just not enough buyers. There's only buying of 11, 12 million per year uh, of, of actual demand, uh, which is you know, what we, you would expect given household formation. So there's too much building. There's no solution to it uh, other than um, budget deficits. You know, how are you gonna deal with, the, with this excess construction? So how, what's gonna happen now in the future? I'm not so sure. I, I would guess that they will move back towards some kind of socialism, okay. perhaps uh, nationalize the housing market in some way. Uh, that's, are, that's there any, are there any investable themes in this? Do you avoid certain sectors or do you go or do you concentrate in some because of uh, this? Um, you know, like, I don't know how to express this view uh, to make money off of it. Uh, I suppose you could maybe short um, bonds, like you know, foreign currency bonds of of developers. Although you know the yield is, is probably not not too bad, so it's it will be um, it would take it would take some fortitude. Um, but uh, you know, I I don't have any clear bets other than of course I've been I've been shorting some some stocks. Uh, mm -hmm. If you if the stocks are having difficulty borrowing and they're paying you know 10 15 percent on the borrowing uh in the chinese property developer industry development industry that's a huge warning sign and you probably want to short this stock because you can't make return on your capital over 10 percent in in the industry even in this boom so um uh yeah you can get involved in in shorting these stocks i guess but uh, I, I personally, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm hooked in, onto Twitter and I read news every day, uh, almost obsessively. And there's so much talk about China just because it's, a, you know, it's a huge economy. But to be honest, I think you're better off probably just focusing on, on the markets where there's real potential. Like for example, Indonesia's property market is is has huge potential, I believe, mm -hmm. over the long run. That's probably where you want to put your, you know, focus your attention on instead of, uh, you know, okay. necessarily. Uh, yeah. Speaking of Indonesian property markets, um, there's this there's this idea in the emerging markets world that you can't invest in a country without understanding its specific. Um, history and culture, even if you understand only in a, in a basic way. What do you think of that? Can, is, it, is it possible for tourists to make money in, uh, in, in, in Southeast Asia? Or do you actually have to spend time understanding the, the past and the culture and how the business culture works? I think there are things you can, you can, you have, you have your edge as a foreigner. And you have an edge as a local. 
I think as a local, you understand, uh, typically you would understand the family or the background of the, of the founders of each company. Uh, you, and, you know, and you would just stay away from certain families like maybe the Riyadis in Indonesia, whereas a foreigner would have no clue and, and they would just buy into whatever uh, story there is. Uh, so, you know, locals typically have the advantage, uh, but there is an advantage um, as, a, as a foreigner sometimes. Perhaps you can see something has happened in one country and you can extrapolate from that. For example, you know, if you've seen the development of, of China, you can look at Vietnam and say, wow, this looks very, very similar. Perhaps, uh, you know, home appliance sales is going to go up in Vietnam as well, just like it's done in, in China. And I remember meeting some fund manager in Vietnam in 2012. That was the bottom of the market. He was a local. Uh, well, actually, he was, a, he was an American, but he spent a lot of time in, in, in Vietnam. And he was so bearish, incredibly bearish. You know, he, he didn't want to touch anything Vietnamese. To be honest, and he was running a fund in Vietnam. You know, you, you would have thought that he would he would have some optimism. Uh, but anyway, like I consider him to be a local because he has spent so much time there, and he was and he was running a Vietnam fund. But anyway, my point was is that uh, you can get blinded, and sometimes comparing the experiences of companies or or countries can be helpful, and uh, sitting. A bit farther away can give you perspective, perhaps. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're if you're talking to local brokers every day, maybe you will be affected by the sentiment, or or, or not see the bigger picture, perhaps. Uh, you previously complained on Twitter about how uh, you can't find you can't find good brokers in Southeast Asia. Uh, have you found one? And if so, what's your recommendation to our listeners? I think um, I was talking specifically about retail brokers. Uh, of course, if you have if you have decent assets under management, you can always find um, you know relationships. Uh, but um, retail brokers are scarce, and I think that uh, it's often the case that there's no one company that has a, a presence in all markets. So maybe you would have a a company like. Um, uh, I don't know, you know, some Maybach or something. They have a good, they have existing businesses in Malaysia and Singapore. Um, and you'd be well served in these markets, but you wouldn't be as well served in, let's say, the Philippines. Okay. And they will often, I think, if you execute an order by them, they, they will, they will, um, they will give that order to someone else, subcontracted, mm-hmm. and that would need to, you know. More people taking a cut of the overall transaction. I just found that it becomes really expensive, um, and uh, in 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 the Philippines, for example, you can end up paying three percent round trip, both buying and selling, uh, or more. In some cases, it could be over five percent. It's it's ridiculous, uh, and and part of that is is due to the uh, foreign currency uh, conversion. You know. Bad exchange rate essentially, and yeah. you can all. It's often the case that you can't even see what the exchange rate is. Uh, is, is being offered to you, so it's all very opaque. And to, so, sorry, long-winded answer to your question. I don't. I haven't found a perfect 
a broker like uh, interactive brokers for example is, is is pretty damn good for us stocks for example but there is no such broker in um, in asia uh, there's boom securities or monex uh, if you live in japan or australia but they are okay but the 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 fees are still high you can still end up paying several percent even mm-hmm. for let's say korea um, so it's not cheap and i would say you just have to be mindful about that so whether you go with the boom securities or whether you go with the kgi or or any of the like singaporean banks for example you're gonna pay pay up to trade so you should buy for the long term and you should buy when there's good enough upside to justify the the higher fees that you know there are present in all of these emerging markets a lot of your uh, stock picks on your newsletter have been out of the consensus you you might find when people talk about buying stocks in asia you know they t- they're usually consumer tech uh, usually uh, consumer retail focused companies and you haven't done um, and you and you uh, and you specifically say that you you don't want to get into the some people might call it a fad of uh, investing in in chinese consumer tech uh, why do you do that what's the rationale behind it Well, you know, I have, okay, I, I should mention this. I, I do have experience in uh, investing in Chinese tech. So it's not bad, you know, I, I have done modeling on many of these stocks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in 2018, some of them were really quite attractive. You could look at the numbers, I mean, actual numbers and say that, wow, this could give you an upside, you know, on a three year basis. Um, but you know, today or even after this latest uh, downdraft, they're just not that cheap. And uh, you know, there's there are obvious issues with uh, the VIE structure, and there are obvious issues with uh, politics in China. You mm-hmm. don't know where you know, there's there's just a huge amount of opacity. So my my view is you, there should be a decent upside, and I can find upside in other industries uh, and. The risks are are much lower. For example, uh, you know this this Filipino this Philippine uh, casino operator is very decent upside actually. You're talking about mid single digits P multiple a few years out, and I don't really see that with the even with the, with the, you know with with Alibaba. Like I just don't see it's not going to trade at single digit multiple. Mm. Maybe it doesn't have to because you know this growth, but you know. I look at the accounts like to me the to me there's I don't know what the hell is going on with the valuation of, of some of their assets like it, it's just a huge mess and if you read through the report I think you'll be even more confused it's it's what is it a thousand pages long in perspectives yeah um so one thing you notice when you when you read when you compare for example american 10k's to uh, annual reports of countries in asia is that american 10k's are very focused on the business and because of the sec uh, reporting requirements there's very little what you might call advertising or promotion in the uh, in the 10k but then and in the sense that it's it's just simple text with numbers in it and 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 words regardless of the truth of the statements but when if if there's somebody who's used to reading those a more focused 
10Ks and then goes to read uh, Asian annual reports. I think the problem they'd uh, face is that it's not as structured as 10Ks are, and it's not always, um, and they and they have typically creative ways of representing the 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 actual facts when you read an annual report uh, how do you screen for facts that matter and uh, differentiate that from the uh, creative um, positioning of management yeah i mean uh, to be honest like <laughs> when you read some of these annual reports um there's just not much substance Right. But something, you know, one thing you can look at is you can look at the MDNA management discussion and okay. look at the how they address problems. There, there's, you know, there are issues with any company, and if the management team is is talking about these issues, okay. that's a good, that's a positive sign. That means that they're probably uh, not painting an, uh, you know, uh, an, an inaccurate picture of the company. Uh, so that's one thing that I'm looking at. I would like to see them talk about, you know, talk frankly about the business and talk about everything that's going on in a in an honest manner. And then, of course, you look at the financials, and there are certain warning signs there. Look at the amount of tax that they're paying. Look at the um, the one-off gains, you know, uh, or the revenue recognition. What is actually being recorded as revenue? Are they using uh, cost to completion accounting, or are they are they is it more clean revenue? You know, when uh, Revenue being recorded when, when goods are being delivered, uh, so that matters. And and then you can you can look at the cash flows, compare them to the net income. Uh, you can look at margins versus peers. Uh, so these are the things that I look at. And if if there's any uh, disparity versus uh, what you would expect for the company in each industry, you kind of have to meet the management, and then then you ask them. If they don't answer with a good, um, with with a you know with a clear answer, probably just stay away. Uh, you talked to the management of Delphi a while ago. Uh, are there what principles do you do you have when talking with, with with management? Are there any specific rules you you have to to uh, get the to get the discussion going in a way that provides more information to to yourself? Um, I gotta say, it was difficult to, to get them to talk to me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> With, without, without the weight of an organization behind me, it, it's a bit difficult to um, to to get uh, access at all, actually, at the moment. Mm -hmm. I don't think Substack has become a thing yet. They're used to talking to Salesforce analysts, but not so much, uh, you know, people writing Substacks or newsletters. So, and in terms of the actual uh, discussion, I don't think I'm particularly good at, at you know, like I'm, I'm not a very social person. I'm, I'm not very good at, uh, you know, getting people to talk. But of course, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't really have an answer um, to, to, to get people, you know, to get management team to talk. Uh, but personally, if you ask me, I'm pretty hardcore. I like to have questions, you know, bam, 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 and go through them quite specifically. I, I know that some some management teams find it a little bit uh, exhausting uh, <laughs> because you know I, I, I would go into specifics, and um, uh, other I know that you know I've been on many group meetings, and I know that other analysts uh, or fund managers they would be a lot more 
lenient. Uh, they will perhaps, you know, they will they will let management teams do their spiel. And to me, that's just a waste of time. I would rather not listen to it because I, I've already read it, you know, in the marketing material. Um, so that's just my style. Although, you know, if you want to create a relationship, perhaps that's something you want to do first, mm-hmm. and then you go into specifics. So I, you know, I don't know which which approach is better. Um, perhaps it is best to create a relationship first, and then you send an email and say, "Oh, can I get more information about this specific line item?" Um, what tips do you have for somebody who's maybe just graduated from college and looking to enter the equity research industry? Um, you get a um, good um, good CV, a good name. You know, you, you get a good brand name on your CV like Goldman Sachs, if you get that, you know, you, you are golden. Like your your career will be de-risked significantly. So that should be their highest priority. You can always learn. I mean, if there's anything that you need to learn, you can always learn these days online. But the leg- leg- legitimacy and the, uh, and the branding you get from starting you to work for a big institution is just, it's something you cannot match. So that's that should be the primary focus you know get into as good of an institution as possible and that will open tons of doors for example it will open to further jobs for for example for a hedge fund or it will open up the doors to an mba you know like i don't think hbs will take you in unless you have a Mm. decent enough job it's you know so you you need that brand name and second uh as well uh you know try to get a mentor Mm-hmm. And that mentor, uh, is, you know, hopefully it will be someone to, who um, who sticks his head out for you, or, or she, uh, someone who who protects you in the organization, someone who um, who teaches you, who gives you exposure, uh, so that you can kind of learn through through osmosis. You know, a lot of things you have to learn on the job. You can't just read uh, read books. Uh, the way things are done uh, is not obvious for any outsider. So if you go into M&A, for example, you have to learn on the job. And uh, a good mentor then is is invaluable, uh, both in terms of learning, but also in terms of going up through the organization. You need protection from someone. You need someone who to, to kind of promote you. Um, so yeah, those, those two things are what comes to mind. But uh, of course, eventually you will uh, uh, you will reach a position where you you will be like, okay, I've I've done my dues. I'll get an MBA now. Now I want to focus on on what I really think is, you know, what, what I really have passion for, and, and passion matters as well. Of course, uh, you you want to be in a position where you where you enjoy your job. Um, so uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, okay. So let's let's say you start out as a as an equity research analyst and you have a passion for defense companies, mm-hmm. uh, or, or something like that. I mean, maybe you have a certain passion. So you know, maybe you can pursue that and become an expert in this particular area. Um, 
that will be another path and try to try to you know create a niche for yourself but there's also risk you know what if you're what if you don't know everything when you're 20 years old what if uh, you change your mind <laughs> you know so uh, I think your biggest priority when you're really young is to is to create a good career make sure that you have a good enough income to to feel self-sufficient and so on uh, so that you so that you know you have a good enough CV you have a good enough enough money to take risks later on yeah that's a that's a pretty good answer one of the better ones I've heard um, my last question to you is you you had on Substack what features do you wish Substack would give to give writers and readers a better uh, experience I think they're giving you a, a very good experience to writers. Okay. Um, the um, you know you know they're working on tons of stuff which is going to make the experience better. For example, they're working on a on a poll feature, which is going to make it easier for me to understand what writers really enjoy, mm-hmm. uh, as in polling the, the the each post, or um, um, and so on. I mean, they they have many features. They have a Substack reader app coming. Uh, and so on. So it's all getting better. I suppose um, one issue for a Substack, or rather one issue for the Substack writers is that each Substack look kind of the same. I know yeah. that you can change it. You can change it a little bit, but uh, you almost become, there's almost a little bit of guilt by association. I've heard people telling me, you know, like you're just another Substack. Why, you know, there's no there's, there's no way you can add value just because you know, because there's you become grouped into a category of substacks mm-hmm. and uh, the average you know average substack is probably not not that great i mean obviously just that's just the way things work like the mm-hmm. average person will have average types of uh, of writing and um, if you don't differentiate yourself it's it's hard to kind of break through to to make people realize that i'm actually spending full time on this um but uh, so more differentiation would help the writer, although Substack itself could actually, maybe they do benefit from having less differentiation because obviously they're, they're now creating, it's obvious once you land on a Substack page, it's obvious that it is Substack. Right. Uh, so, uh, but, but yeah. I, to answer your question, I, I think that the um, making each Substack a little bit more differentiated could help the writer. Um, but I, I think they're already doing a fantastic job. Okay, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great talking to you. Mostly because you've got one of the most unique opinions among people I know, and I mean that in a, in a good sense. So uh, yeah, it, it was it was great having you. Well, thank you so much, then. Thank you so much. Hope to chat again. Yep.